Ambassador Sam Brownback isn't new to politics or to Washington, where he first arrived in 1994. He's been a congressman, a 15-year U.S. senator, a presidential candidate, and a two-term Republican governor of Kansas. For the last two years, he's had a job whose end goal is so sweeping, one can't help but think it's unattainable to fully advance religious freedom for all people, a priority that since creating the State Department Religious Freedom Office, Congress has repeatedly said is in the interest of all 193 countries of the world and in our interest. The ambassador believes religious freedom is a kind of linchpin for all other social benefits, from economic prosperity to other basic human rights. You get this one right, your balance sheet goes up. He argues we'll either figure out how to respect each other's faith traditions or kill each other. But even for a superpower, convincing other nations to reform can be incredibly difficult. Joining Ambassador Brownback today to draw out these matters is Wajahat Ali, a progressive, full-of-life Muslim journalist, lawyer, poet, and playwright. Wajahat writes for the New York Times, previously hosted Al Jazeera America's The Stream, and appears regularly on CNN. For years, he was an Al Jazeera national correspondent, and during the Clinton administration, he helped the State Department advance social entrepreneurship in developing countries, from Pakistan to Singapore. This is a riveting conversation because it's informed and honest. Waj and the ambassador certainly don't agree on everything, but the dialogue moves swiftly, almost effortlessly, offering a snapshot of religious freedom around the world, from India to China and Tibet, from South America to Myanmar. How do LGBTQ rights relate to religious freedom? And how does this differ, at least in our perception, at home and abroad? What does it mean that religion can light fires and fuel persecution in some places, while in others, acting as an unstoppable force for reconciliation and mutual respect? Enjoy the conversation. We're in the nation's capital, talking to Ambassador Sam Brownback, the U.S. Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedoms, also, the former governor and senator of the great state of Kansas, in 1998 as senator, Ambassador Brownback actually helped create the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom. And voila, 20 years later, <laughs> he was narrowly confirmed with that tie-breaking vote by Vice President Mike Pence. I had to bring that in there. That's true. In January 2018, making him only the fifth person to hold this position. Thank you so much for joining me and Josh, Ambassador Brownback. Well, pleasure to join you. And it was a nail biter, but we made it on through. And 49-49. Uh, uh, right there. Fortunately, they don't have a time clock in the Senate. So, you know, an hour or two later, the vice president shows up, casts the deciding vote, and I'm in. So that worked out. I love the work. And this is the best job I've ever had. And I've been able, as you know— It's a job the, you literally helped create. And we just wanted to help to create. But it's also— this is this great time right now in history where either we're going to tolerate and respect each other in religion or we're going to kill each other. Oh, that's and, wonderful. Thank you for that optimistic Yeah, you know, I, mean, I was thinking about beginning. that before coming over to this podcast, thinking you really are kind of at one of those deciding points of which way are we going to go in the world. And you could cite any number of examples around the world for that, that very feature because the world's religious. 
many people in the United States and the West think, eh, I don't know, religion's kind of dying it down. But it's not. It's 80% of the world community has a faith that they kind of organize their life around and mm-hmm. in some cases very intensely organize their life around. But you know, we're either going to figure out how to tolerate and respect. And I, I think tolerance is too low of a standard. Right. I think it's got to be at the respect and love one another standard. Or there are going to be a lot more people dying and persecuted for their faith. You know, I wonder if I could jump in real yeah, quickly on that topic, especially about the world being religious, because it's a dynamic that is impactful with respect to journalism and anchors a lot of what we do with the project as well. There was this line from Dean Backett at New York Times, the executive editor up in New York, who said after the election in 16, I want to make sure that we're much more creative about beats out there in the country so that we understand that anger and disconnectedness that people feel. And I think I use religion as an example because I was raised Catholic in New Orleans. I think that the New York-based and Washington-based, too, probably, media powerhouses don't quite get religion. We have a fabulous religion writer, but she's all alone. We don't get religion. We don't get the role of religion in people's lives. And I think that we can do better, much better. I think there are things we can do to be much more creative to better understand the country. I just wonder if you might comment, Ambassador Brumbach, on your take on sort of journalism there, but also on the State Department there with respect to sort of how religiously they see the world versus you're discovering it to be? I don't think they get it. Much of the time, I think they're getting much better at getting it. I remember meeting, uh, when I was in the Senate, Madeleine Albright was secretary, and she brought a group of senators in, and and it was about Israel, and the the State Department was going to take some move that they thought would be controversial with Israel, and and it's mostly Jewish members that are there, and it's mostly Democrats, and I was there, and I'm kind of wondering, I'm wonder why I'm here, but I'm here. Okay. You know, and then it comes around to me and I said, well, yes, no, it's not just the, the Jews that care about Israel. The Christians care about it. And somebody piped back and said, well, well, they didn't care much during World War II, did they? Look what happened to the Jews uh, then. And, you know, and there was this, I said, that's correct. And people repent of that and they're sad about that, but there's a strong Christian interest in it. And I left that meeting kind of going, What's going on? And I thought, you know, I bet a lot of them just don't have people that they know closely whose faith is animating in them. They know people who have a faith, but the faith doesn't doesn't run their life. It doesn't animate them. And so that they just, it's a blind spot, but that blind spot's really big. Uh, You know, it's 80% of the world, so... We better figure that blind spot out. I mean, I write for the New York Times, right? And I can tell you in in the field of journalism, we don't get how to talk about religion well. Even the Washington Post, Michelle Borstein always says like, there's like three of us and that's a lot. And look at how faith or um, faith-based communities really respond to the political, cultural issues of today. It's like, you know, this is important. And if you don't have an insight to those communities, oftentimes you talk about them, like the joke I always say, because we're all people of faith here. I think we can clearly say, right? It's either you are a carnivore or a vegan. And I'm like, no, most of us are omnivores. It's not, you know, it's like, I, I, I mean, I'll tell you, they're like, well, John, you seem like a cool guy. You read The New Yorker and you watch movies. How can you eat meat? I know. How can you, how can, no, no. How can you pray and fast during Ramadan? Because their image of a pious Muslim is an austere, severe person, like, you know, perhaps bearded and angry. And they're like, I don't understand. You, you're, I mean, I literally get this all the time from very sophisticated men and women, believe it or not, in New York and D.C., which huh, you're, I didn't know Muslims could be funny, <laughs> and, and like and just and, and like is, so. Forget even talking about religion, but even religious communities, 
you know, which it, religion is a, a force that is given meaning by the people who live it. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't understand those people and how they live that religion, I mean, you're doing such a disservice to a large part. I don't even think even the country, but even the world, right? You just don't you get are. it. Yeah. And you just miss so much. Then you miss so much. Like, take what's going on in South America now, if you would. I mean, so Bolsonaro gets elected in Brazil and you're going, where does he come from? You know, and you've got this real leftist and then you've got this kind of more evangelical guy that's coming up. Well, what, well what's happening in the country? You know, you've got these big moves of a real charismatic Pentecostal sort of Christianity going very broadly throughout South America. Well, if you don't pick that up, you don't see this coming because politics is really is downstream from culture and religion. It affects it all. And uh, that's why I think it's something that's really got to be just much better appreciated. And I don't even know if I want to say understood, but just appreciated that this is really a significant feature in the world. I think it's religious literacy. You're not going to be an evangelist or a proselytizer, but if you know, it just makes you more adept at being I'm assuming a diplomat. And you said most of the world's religious, but you are also religious. I have yeah. heard this in our pejorative that Sam Brownback is a hardcore Catholic. <laughs> First of all, is that true? And second of all, let it be known that you are talking to a Muslim who was taught by Jesuits at an all-boys Jesuit Catholic high school, Bellarmine, where I got the highest grade every semester in religious Did studies. Did they beat on your hands with your <laughs> No, they were like the, the liberal the Bay Area brothers. ones. Uh, no, they, so they didn't do that. <laughs> they made us drop an Our Father, though, so I can drop an Our Father uh, <laughs> through memory. But, you know, speaking about, you know, the world's religious, you are religious. Is that an accurate assessment that Sam Brownback is a hardcore Catholic? Oh, I don't know that I would. I wouldn't put myself probably that way. I am Catholic. I really try to follow Jesus is what I try to do. I get it wrong a lot, but at my core, that's what I'm trying to do is and really you know, study his teachings and follow the way he did things. I believe he was son of God. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he came this season that we're celebrating now. And, and so that's what I, I organize my life really around that. And I go to regular mass. I, I try to attend daily mass. I really appreciate the church. I'm a late joiner to Catholicism. I joined probably about a dozen years ago, but did you convert from another denomination or religion? Or? Yeah, I was Protestant and okay. then joined the Catholic Church. And, and I was very happy with where I was Protestant, but I had a, a real inspiration. And then I spent time studying it and thinking about it and praying about it. And uh, I came in and have really appreciated the depth and the teaching and the breadth of it. It also probably had an impact on me that I'd met Mother Teresa on her last foreign trip. Mm -hmm. I host her on the Capitol Hill when she got her congressional gold medal. And the single most impressive human being I've ever met. And this is this four foot, 10 inch frail. She's very frail at that point in time. But just the words that she would say and the way she lived of life was just really, really impressive and touching to me. You know, we were talking about religious literacy and you're a religious person. Uh, you take it seriously. How does that inform, you think, for better or worse? We'll get to the worst part, but for better, your role as the ambassador for religious freedoms. I think it really helps because I'm dealing with religious people a lot. And I think it really helps, particularly in the Muslim community. Yeah. And you might think, oh, wait a minute. How are you going to do that? I, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school. I would not think that. But some might. <laughs> some might. Well, but I find when you go into the Muslim regions of the world where this is the dominant faith, they're people of faith. They work. They operate by their faith. And so that I come in as somebody that lives by my faith, I'm looking at you. Okay, I get it. 
I understand it. I appreciate it. I'm impressed because to work your life by faith, it really means you're trying to deny yourself. You're denying all the pleasures and things that maybe you would pursue for a higher calling. Mm. And some of my best relationships for as far as some of the things I think we've been able to do have been in the Muslim world. And I think it's that operation by faith. We both work by faith. Whereas I think they're used to dealing with U.S. diplomats that operate by reason, or that we're going to just deal with this all by reason. And there's nothing wrong with reason. God gave us a mind. But if you exclude the spiritual side of it, it's like you're missing a whole facet here that you can't deal with. And I uh, Can you give us, I mean, here's an example. If you're a diplomat, obviously it's the United States of America. It's supposed to be religious freedoms, secular society as well, separation of church and state. So you're going there as a diplomat. How does your religious identity, the religious literacy, if you will, act as the filler? Where I say, let me put it this way. You're talking to a, a Muslim community, right? Say, say you're in Myanmar. Like, how do you, being religious, give you, like, gives you a specific vocabulary that you think maybe a colleague of yours who is not well-versed, like, it gives you that advantage? It's like, is there any example where you could be like, I get you because I'm a Catholic, and then you would get an in? Yeah, with that I, don't, community. I think it's just the appreciation for somebody that moves by faith, that's out for a higher calling mm. and recognizes their failings. I mean, I am far from a, I'm a sinful man. And I think most people that are pursuing their faith realize they're falling short of it. Just it's, it's always a yearning to doing better. But it's that understanding that we're both pursuing a, another place. We're seeking a, a higher calling. And realizing the frailties of human mankind's existence uh, to do it. I think it, it just that there is a bonding there of people of faith, even though it's different faiths. Mm. I love, again, Mother Teresa's line on this, that she operated in India, which her views were in a substantial minority position. But she would say, you know, I love all faiths because it's the search for God. It's the search for the transcendent. I'm in love with my own. That's a way to look at it. I have to jump in here now because you're a man of faith, sincere, Catholic. You're dealing with Muslims. A lot of your work is with Muslim communities. We're going to talk about that later in the podcast. You're representing the United States of America. You're not responsible for Donald Trump's comments. You're your own man, but you're the ambassador in this administration. You said 80% of the world lives in places where religious freedoms are under attack. That's a quote. Some would say that includes the United States. Because here you are, the ambassador for religious freedoms, and Muslims both here and abroad are like, wait a second, President Trump, when he was running, said, I'm calling for a complete and total shutdown on Muslims from coming in to the United States. And he's promoted on Twitter some very hateful conspiracy theories about Muslims and Islam. I'm being subtle here. This is not lost upon not just Muslims here, but Muslims abroad. So when you go as the ambassador of the United States of America in this administration, how do you respond to critics? It doesn't have to be Muslims who say, interesting that you're telling me about religious freedoms. Look what's happening in your own backyard. Well, we cite what happens in our own backyard. Hmm. At the last uh, ministerial we had here earlier this year in July, we had a um, Jewish rabbi from Pittsburgh from the uh, synagogue. Tree of life. Yeah. Hmm. That had gotten the shootings, the killings that had taken place there. I've dealt with these issues when I was governor of Kansas. We had a synagogue that was attacked. We had uh, white supremacists tried to kill Muslims. We had two um, self-radicalizing Islamic individuals try to blow up buildings. 
it happens here. These things happen here. I think the thing that we have to point out and that I try to point out is that there are legal mechanisms for dealing with these things. Like China says, okay, we've got radical Islam in the western part of China. We're just going to lock all the Muslims up. Internment camps. Yeah. You got a million Muslims in that. And I'm going, you know, when I had two guys that self-radicalized in Kansas, I didn't go and say, we're going to lock up all the Muslims in Kansas. We actually went to the mosque and said, we need help dealing with this. And they helped us. And we locked the two guys up and they're in prison. And they're going to be there for a while. And that that's the way you work with the faith community who doesn't want this stuff happening anyway. But you got people that are that are radicalized. But how, and, do you, how do you separate? Can you separate? I know you're a diplomat, so your hands are tight. But as a person of faith who works with Muslim communities, when you get confronted with this question, like, I believe you, Sam, if they say that. I understand you're a man of faith. You're here in my community. You're trying to help me. But at the same time, you're working at this administration where the president says hateful things about certain religious communities. Are you able to articulate some disagreement or does your job just limit you in a specific lane? You know, I talk about difficulties that we have. I give answers just like what I did to you there. And I said, and we're not perfect, but we're going to keep pushing. Mm. We have a court system in the United States that's independent of administration, whether it's Republican or Democrat. These cases find their way into courts. That's what they should do. And we're going to try to keep getting better, but it isn't going to keep us off the field. We're still going to push for religious freedom because we just think it's such a fundamental right. It's one that's under assault. It's one that if you get it wrong, you tend to get other human rights wrong. This is something we're going to push on and we're going to push on hard. So your office, I mean, so you say like whatever happens within the political ecosystem of America, your office is going to go ahead and pursue the fundamental right yeah. of religious freedoms in these countries that you visited. So in the uh, bill that I helped pass to create this position that I now occupy. Very well done, sir. Well played. Yeah. 20-year plan, <laughs> uh, which I didn't foresee at the time. There's only one country in the world that we can't cover, that I can't cover. United States of America. Mm. And that was purposeful mm. because the issues of religious freedom in the United States are a great contest around those points. And a lot of them are working in their courts now. And I think that was a really wise thing to do to keep this position bipartisan. Because mm. otherwise, it would be a position that, you know, one party would say, well, we kind of like this stuff more than the other does. And, you know, we're just one of the key things for us is really to keep this topic bipartisan. And we would not be able to do that if this position took positions on U.S. religious freedom cases that many of which – are in the courts now and finding their way up, way up the system. And it goes back to your confirmation, right? And it goes back to how you started I this off. I didn't get there by uh, 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 No, that, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because you show, it reveals the tensions. And also this conversation that you said, you know, this kind of stark moment of urgency that we're in. It's like we have yeah. two paths for not just America, but the world, right? Like we either are going to get along or we're going to kill each other. And so when I was looking at your confirmation, these cultural tensions came yes. to play. And specifically, when it came to the, the partisanship, Democrats were very concerned that some of your comments during the hearing, especially about LGBTQ rights, you know, it reveals this great tension in America, religious freedoms or the freedom to not be persecuted for my sexuality. Right? Like that's kind of a core great microcosm that we're facing in America right now, because you got all these religious communities saying, hey, 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 I better have my religious freedom, perhaps not to bake a cake 
for a gay couple. And then you have LGBTQ communities saying we are marginalized communities. We want to have the freedom not to be persecuted. How can you reconcile or how do we reconcile as a country? Religious freedoms of some faith communities versus the desire of others, say LGBTQ, to be protected from discrimination. Is there a balance or does one group, let's be blunt, does one group have to cede? You know, the short answer is I don't know because Mm -hmm. uh, this has been going on for a while and it's going to go on for a while. That's why we have courts and why so many of these religious freedom cases are making their way up the Supreme Court because that issue has to be resolved here in the United States. One of the interesting things to point out globally, though, Mm. is that the countries that are the best on religious freedom also tend to be the best on LGBT rights. Example, please. Western Europe. United States, uh, if you compare us to much of the rest of the world, particularly, say, the Islamic regions of the world, number of other developing countries, LGBT rights are not, are not strong. Right. Iran, uh, for example. Iran's terrible. Brunei. Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, you get thrown off a building. I, I mean, there's terrible things. So that, but that's the foundational piece that we keep, I keep harping about on religious freedom. You get this one right. Your balance sheet goes up on freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, your basics, and it actually happens to get much better for you on LGBT rights, which is not what most people would think in this country. But if you go abroad, there would be more people thinking in that category because it just means that you really are looking more at the dignity of the individual. You've made a choice one way or the other. People may agree with it or disagree with it. There are people who look at me and they'd say, he made a choice to be a follower of Jesus. I don't agree with that. You know, I think it's too bad or this or that, but look, he made a choice. And that's just the basis of freedom of religion is really of a dignity of the individual to choose whether people agree with you or not. And it's a reciprocity, right? Yes. And, it applies and, to you. It applies to me. And that's my just fear is that the only way to make it, especially in the United States of America, this is my opinion, of course, this is a diverse melting pot the most diverse country in the world, is like, listen, I might not like your faith. I might not like your lifestyle. But you have the right to live a dignified life, to be free, to be who you are. But I have also the right to be me. I just don't know, especially how you anchored and framed this conversation, if we're here at this moment in 2019. I just feel like something has to give. And what happens when no one is willing to cede any ground? And then just a follow-up question then, as people of faith, all three of us, what responsibility do we have then, if any, to be the bridge builders? Well, I think we have big responsibilities in that, in being reconcilers and in trying to figure ways that to accommodate and to work through this set of issues. Because they're significant. Uh, there's just no question about it. And I think really in this country, what you've got is just a series of these cases are making their way up the Supreme Court. And how those are decided will have a big impact, obviously, here, but it will be also on kind of how you define religious freedom. Most of the work in our office, we're mainly just trying to keep people from being killed and not getting thrown out of the country. Well, once uh, you put it in that stark, you're like, all right, camps. America's doing pretty well. Yeah, well, if, I mean, if the other option is death. Honestly, we are. We are far from perfect. But, I mean, you can look at the Rohingya in Myanmar and just really kicked out. You can look Genocide. at the, the Uyghurs in China and a million in internment camps. You can look at the house church in China and the churches being bulldozed. You can look at Saudi Arabia. You don't have a single church in the place. You Pakistan, India. 
I mean, there's just a lot of places you can go and say, this is not working very well. Mm-hmm. And people are getting killed. Nigeria is probably the most deadly place to be a Christian on the planet today. And it's not because of government policies. It's probably more of a weaker government. But you've just got this. A lot of it's Muslim on Christian violence right. that's taking place there. And a lot of it's uh, like literally dividing the country, that parallel, literally the north and the south. I just was remembering maybe five or six years ago, sitting at a prayer breakfast and wondering if the administration, if we weren't getting a little bit ahead of our skis with the strong impulse to advance LGBTQ rights abroad. I remember a speech by then President Obama, and you just think about sort of the balance on this and the deliberate sort of work. I don't envy what you guys get to do, have to do, but I, I guess was curious to ask if, you know, there are one point, I may be wrong on the numbers, but 1.9 billion Muslims in the world, 2.3 billion Christians in the world or so, but the numbers are sort of fast climbing in the Muslim world. You know, what are the ways that, uh, I remember they used to say in philanthropy, you want to have less money to get great outcomes. You want to have your philanthropic investment be more like a lubricant that helps something that already wants to happen as opposed to being something that, you know, you're paying for everything. Is there a way that you are, as an office, using that religious vitality, integrity of these communities that you're working with or governments of a very religious people, you know, advantageously along that line? And how do you designate different kinds of groups to motivate change? Well, we do. We are. We're seeing a real growth in willingness to push for religious freedom in uh, South America. I mentioned, you know, the, the growth of the evangelical population in South America. We're seeing now some of those countries become more aggressive about pushing for religious freedom, whereas before they were kind of, eh, everything's fine in our hemisphere. We're not too interested in the topic. So you use that base and that growth to really push. You're seeing a lot more Muslim-majority countries, the leadership level, starting to question this monochromatic religious view of the world, that we have to have a purified Sunni Islam country. You're, talk, you're talking about Saudi Arabia, it seems like, without, well, but without mentioning it. No, I'm talking about a lot of the Middle East because you've got mostly – the most Christian population has been pushed out of the Middle East outside of Egypt and Lebanon. It's There's not much of it left. And the Coptics are oppressed. They are discriminated against in <sighs> Egypt. terrible. And you just – I mean the whole re- – but you're starting to – I'm starting to talk with more of the leaders in those countries going, this is not a good recipe for growth, for economic growth. Where they've seen like Abu Dhabi that's been a very open place and they've seen this huge growth taking place. And I hold it up and I said, you know, look, you don't want a monochromatic view of the world for faith. You want to have a vibrant and, – and a lot of places kind of get an umbrage at a secular society. They don't really like the term secular. I'm going, I agree with you. I want a very robust religious society. But I just want it everybody's protected long as you're peacefully practice your faith. Now, if you won't peacefully practice your faith, that's another matter. But if you'll peacefully practice your faith, you want a robust, very dynamic faith marketplace with people out there and each adding their stream of thought. Because most of it is all people trying to be better. Mm. They're trying to love more. They're trying to care. They're trying to care for their families. That's part of their responsibility. The faith traditions, by and large, have many of the basic same principles that are very encouraging, and you want that. You just, everybody's got to be protected, and unfortunately, you get a lot of times religion gets weaponized, 
in places around the world and, and where it's used for evil. I just was in the Balkans for a week-long trip, and then we did a seminar on religion as an instrument for peace. Mm. But most of the history of the Balkans is religion as an instrument of war. And I was telling them, you guys are either going to be an example to the rest of the world of how to get it right, or you're going to be in a cautionary tale about here we go again, because you've got Catholics there, you got the Orthodox there, you got Muslims there this crossroads of East and West, and centuries of killing each other, usually with religion playing a, a big supporting role somewhere in this. I mean, we've got to get it right. We're too close as a world anymore. There's too much overlapping of places where you're having these interactions. And that's what I mean. It's either we're either going to figure out how to do it right. There's going to be a lot of people killed. I mean, you mentioned the Balkans just coincidentally a couple of years ago. I happened to be in Sarajevo during Ramadan. And so here we were. I don't know if you've ever gone to Sarajevo, right? Uh, it's, I was there yeah, this it's time. a beautiful place. And oh. you see the lasting legacy of the Ottoman culture with modern Europe. And you see uh, the markets with like a, a mosque. And then you see whirling dervishes. I'm like, this is beautiful. But at the same time, you pass by graveyards based on what happened in the 90s. And you see the disaster that befalls a nation when they're torn apart by um, religious discrimination. And you think about it. These were guys that had lived together in the same nation in Yugoslavia for, what, 70 years mm -hmm. under the force of the gun. But after 70 years, you're kind of going, oh, you guys all know each other. Everybody should get along, right? You know, we didn't let you divide by religions. No, it wasn't long after that. And they were... I was there in the first congressional delegation after the shelling stopped in Sarajevo, and people were just crawling out from under rocks. Literally. Literally crawling out from under rocks. And, but nobody's reconciled this either. And it's it's, not, it, it feels like a tinder keg. Like you walk there, you're like, if some folks just got weapons, if someone just pushed the wrong buttons, this could all fall apart. That's there. how I felt when I was there. It's there. And you get an enterprising politician that wants to take and use that. And you know right where that spot is. And so I, we've been proposing to people, we need to have reconciliation and repentance trips where we go to each other's massacre sites. You go to the site where the Orthodox were massacred, where the Muslims were massacred, where the Catholics were massacred, and in repentance and reconciliation and have the faith communities do that publicly mm. in those areas. Because you, if you don't dig that thing out, Everybody knows exactly where that spot is. This is not a hard nerve to find and touch, and it will explode. You know, speaking, but I would imagine yeah. that your budget to do such a thing <laughs> is not what the State Department is or the maybe USAID or, or but the, spirit, Department. the spirit so and the you're intent. You're working with Josh. religion. You're working with religion realities on a relatively small budget. I mean, can you just say briefly, what is the budget of the office and uh, yeah, what yeah, kind of tools? Yeah, we're, we've got about 25 staff people and we've borrowed from some other places. So we get some other ones in it. We've got about a total of an $8 million budget and that includes some grant money that we can put out to it. But we also, we get a lot of help. I mean, the secretary's office has been very supportive, other pieces of the agency, and then the embassies throughout the world. As this has grown of importance in this administration, the embassies then themselves will lean in and they'll put more personnel uh, in places. So that's not a full representation of the asset base we've got 
but it works. And it's, I think the real key piece of it is that the administration's really strongly supportive. Uh, but we've done these two ministerials. We brought foreign ministers mm-hmm. from around the world together, thousand civil society activists. We're launching the International Religious Freedom Alliance, and it's an alliance of nations willing to push on this. It'll be the first new human rights group in a, a international human rights group of countries in a generation. We've lost ground on human rights globally over the last 10 to 15 years. We're losing ground. And you're thinking, 2019, we ought to be gaining ground on human rights, but we're not. And I think a decent piece of it, honestly, is this religious Religion, it can be used politically, it can be used weaponized, it can be this, it can be a great tool for peace. It can be a tool for human understanding and growth. So, unfortunately, it gets used different places, different ways. Well, this entire conversation brings up what's happening right now. A politician hitting a particular nerve center, exposing that raw nerve that can be exploited, using religion as a divisive sword and potential deadly consequences that could result. I have to read your tweet from December 13th. Uh, Quote, one of hashtag India's great strengths is its constitution. As a fellow democracy, we respect India's institutions, but are concerned about the implications of the cab bill. We hope the government will abide by its constitutional commitments, including on religious freedom. This, of course, is in reference to India's very controversial citizenship amendment bill that would give Indian citizenship to immigrants from three neighboring countries, but not if they're Muslim. Now, India's BJP government says it was actually passed to protect religious minorities who fled persecution in their home countries. And I have to roll my eyes when I say that. But the whole world and what's happening right now as we speak, these riots, these protests in India, everyone's like, this is yet again another example of Modi's Hindu nationalism going against India's 200 million Muslims, and also it does not bode well for Christians. From your tweet, what specifically are the implications that you are concerned about from this bill? Well, the the implications are that we expect a lot out of India. There are countries that we push on a lot, and sometimes you hope you can get somewhere, and a lot of times you just kind of pushing. But India is a democracy. It's the largest democracy in the world. It's got an independent judiciary. Now, some people will challenge that statement, but I think it is. And when India starts doing this, it has big impacts in that country and has big impacts around the world. It's also a bad route for a country to go if they want to grow economically which we think India needs to grow economically. India thinks it needs to grow economically. And we are pushing India as a strong ally. We need to have a strong ally in that region, particularly in our face-off with China. Right, for national security also. For the global security. And, you know, you've got the two largest countries in the world, and you've got a communist regime, communist dictatorship in China, and you've got a democracy in India. And we're going, you you guys have got a hold by these— democratic principles which hold to religious freedom and respect and the government's role is to protect the right to religious freedom. It's not to pick a winner or a loser. It's to protect that right. And that this will long-term the best strategy. Near-term, there may be political advantages to playing things one way or the other, but long-term, it's this all is bad. by far. This, yeah, this is, if you go down to narrowing yourself religiously— 
this is bad economically. It's bad for terrorism. It's, it, this is a bad road, even though the first few steps may taste sweet. They may look like this is going to work, and that's and that's the real. crackdown of an entire community. You're telling them you're the other. You don't belong. Oh, by the way, there's 200 million of you. Yeah, and it's also traditionally India in that region traditionally has been very tolerant of different faiths. I mean, I think the Indian subcontinent spawned three or four major religions themselves. And they've all kind of over time been, okay, yeah, you know, you view the world this way. I'm going this way. It's been a very tolerant. And then you start getting these things and you're going, this is a bad road. Long term, this will not be good. I mean, it's probably it, been four or five months, but we got a letter from a little seminary in the north that we support, have a relationship with, basically just flagging the fear, uh, just flagging the concern that we're not deep sure. fear. Yeah. We're not sure how many of our faculty will be able to stay. The communal violence steps up, and that, that's what we've been noting. What I've been noting to the Indian government when I've been meeting with them is, you know, we're not I've seen as many things by the government, but the communal violence has been severe. It goes to, if I may just take a step further, Josh introduced this, you know, what we can do as the United States to compel this. So suppose you have a country, let's just say India. If you don't want to talk about India, let's just say, I don't know, an ally, which is a democracy with a pluralistic society that we depend upon, that we need, which has elections. And there is a massive abuse of religious minorities. How can the U.S. or even your office entice, compel, or force them to respect religious freedoms of a minority? What mechanisms do we have? Well, I mean, you got a series of mechanisms, uh, none of which are perfect, or and there's no silver bullet in any of them. We can cite countries as special concern, as uh, countries of particular concern. We can sanction countries. Those tools are all put in it. We can put them in our reports and we can cite things. We can tweet and we can raise this information. We can raise it up in other venues. A number of people in the Congress will raise issues up. There can be uh, funding pulled back in different categories. In my view of these things, the best thing always to do is to try to get to show a country what their best interest is and to pull towards it, mm. that, that places and people act in their own best interest. And so in a case like this, I think it's going to them really as a friend and saying, this is a bad road. This will not work long term for what you need and what we hope to see out of you, which is a stable, economically growing, vibrant, strategic partner. And you need to think about what this does, because I think that's then appealing to a country's self-interest. We recently got Uzbekistan off of the country of particular concern list. It's a country from the former Soviet Union, Central Asia. It's really kind of easily drawn into the old kind of Soviet police state mentality. But the whole thing that we were saying to them, so you want to grow economically, you need to open up and provide for human rights and then take this show on the road, take it to the money center places and say, look, we're a different place now. And this will attract more capital. And that's what they did. They did it because they saw it as an economic route to move forward. And I believe it so is. They, they had an incentive. But they you know, did. Yeah, but my concern is, right, and I know we all share this concern, is that when you have a superpower, which has more than a billion people which knows that it could flex. They could say, all right, Ambassador Brownback, we appreciate that. No, we think we're on the right road with this type of nationalism. So we're going to continue. And I realize that we then 
as a superpower, just kind of have to wait it out, it seems. And we see with India, and since you mentioned this, I want to bring this up, Josh, China, right? Because you have said, quote, the Chinese government, this is a pretty bold quote, the Chinese government is at war with faith. That's your statement. We're in a trade war with China. President Trump is talking to China. We rely on China. But China has detained more than a million Uyghurs. What do we do? Well, I think you've seen some of the things we've done. Uh, we put individuals on the visa sanction list, which this is some people think that's not particularly significant. But a lot of Chinese officials have family members here in the United States, mm-hmm. and now they can't come. We put a number of these companies that are in the region or their equipment is being used for surveillance. They've been on put on the entity list so that now they can't do business in the United States. There are other sanctions uh, being considered as well. Some of the Chinese companies that have produced their surveillance equipment cannot now export to the United mm. States. So we're using a series of items against China on this. I noted at the end of that statement, you quoted the first half of it, China's at war with faith. I noted at the end of it, it is a war they will not win. Mm. Governments have tried for years to put down faith in different places. It doesn't work. It's the kingdom of man trying to subdue the kingdom of God. And you're not going to win that fight. Now, for near term, you may have some victories. You may be able to hold them back for a while. And Ambassador Brambach, tell us just a little bit, our listeners especially, you know, what we do know about how China is softly persecuting Christians and Muslims and others in the country in terms of cameras. Because people don't know. Right. New York Times has done a fab. So a number of other groups, Economists, Washington Post on Xinjiang, Western China, Muslim-based population, Turkish much of it uh, in descent, and they've got, they literally have a million people in internment camps, in concentration type camps. But then it doesn't end there. The bigger piece I'm actually concerned about is this surveillance technology system that they've put around them that they started in Tibet hmm. over the Buddhist, that the party secretary there, Chen Guangguo, and I hope you remember that name, he was the party secretary in Tibet that put the surveillance system and the cultural genocide in Tibet in place, and then it was successful, and they gave him Xinjiang. And so he's put that in place. The problem with this is it's the future of oppression. It's cameras everywhere. It's facial recognition systems. It's social credit scores. So if you go to the mosque twice a month, If you've got a beard, you're seen as too pious, too religious, you get a lower social credit score. Mm. They know who you are. They've got a facial recognition camera on you in in most of the marketplaces. And you increasingly aren't able to get an apartment. Kids can't go to school. You can't travel. And the future of oppression will look much more like this. They've got a bus now in... um, Beijing that you can get on by facial recognition camera. It just sees you, spots you, hits your credit card in three seconds or two. Great. You know, a lot of millennials to say, oh, man, that's cool. Wow. I'm looking at that and going. That's terrifying. Yeah. What if they don't like you? No. What if I want to go to church? And then if somebody pings you on your cell phone, the person that gets pinged gets your same social credit score, and they may not want to be religious. And they may say, you know, come on, will you stop going to church? You're hurting me. And so the the social pressure to give up on faith. And here, I mean, this is what to me is just so diabolical about it is that they'll let you do most anything else. If you want to go to school, you want to get a job, you want to do this, great. But if you want to practice your faith, now we got a problem. 
now we're not going to do this. House churches have gotten a lot of their institutions have been bulldozed. The house church leaders have been arrested. Tibet has been horribly put under thumb. That's why I was just out at Dharamsala, India, because the Chinese government is claiming the right to point the successor to the Dalai Lama. And I'm going— Yeah, that won't work. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going, really? And you're going, yeah, yeah, we think that uh, we should appoint him. And I say, well, okay, that's the, because the Tibetans are in China. You think you should get, That's like, okay, they're Catholics in China, and you get to appoint the next pope. Is that what you're claiming to? That's exactly it. It's the same theme, and you're just going, no. The religious group itself has its own rights to appoint its own and venerate its own leaders. And the other thing that's just, to me, really terrifying about this and wrong, China seeks to be a global leader. And this is the system they want to lead with. Cultural eradication. It's a system that will let you do most anything you want except practice your faith. And, the and we won't have any problems with you on anything else, mostly, some things. But if you want to be religious, we got a problem. And it goes back to the beginning of this conversation, how religion plays such an important role and is such an important force throughout human history for so many communities. And China practiced this on the Tibetans, yes. is now perfecting it on the Uyghur Muslims. And, you know, when people say, like, guys, I always think about this. How do you make people care? Ah, it's the Muslims. Ah, it's the Tibetans. And I hope that we're paying attention to you right now because China doesn't care. It does about Muslims or Tibetans or Christian. If you go against the state, you are the enemy. You will be crushed. And if they perfect this, what keeps them from outsourcing this? And they are and selling the system. And once these systems get developed, and you've developed the algorithms and the and everything, it's fairly cheap to put in place. It, it's a data collection mm. system now to get by a cell phone in China. You have to give them your facial recognition if you're Chinese, and you just go, oh my word. And now, okay, they could start exporting that to other authoritarian regimes just that want to control people. And, okay, we've developed the system. We've got all the software. You've got to buy a bunch of these cameras. You've got to install them. You've got to get the data collection on the genetic typing and the facial recognition. And then we're all done. We're all set. Point, turn it on, and, and we can suppress most things. That's the future of oppression. That's what it looks like, and it's being implemented now in Xinjiang. And the reason people should care is it will come to other places. Right. If we don't stop it now, it's coming to places near you. A very exquisite pop cultural reference, which is of the moment. I don't know if you guys follow. But there's this show, The Watchmen, based on the graphic novel. There's a character in there called Dr. Manhattan who absorbs powers and becomes almost like a near god. And he's given all these powers, but he doesn't necessarily use it responsibly. In fact, one of the critiques is you could have saved so much of humanity and you, and you did nothing. You were oblivious. And I know you have limitations as a diplomat. I know you have limitations with the budget, $8 million. It's not much. You got a staff of 25, not much. You guys are trying. But here's just a question. Suppose you were unbridled and you could just, you got a superpower that could really fix some of these problems that we've addressed in the last 40 minutes, what would that be? What could you do with it? What it would be would be religious freedom for all, everywhere, all the time. That's the objective. It would be pushed by international bodies in uniformity, by the UN, by the OSCE, by the EU, by the US. It'd be agreed to by countries. 
It would be uh, such that if a country does not do it, that there are sanctions or punishments for you because this is such a foundational issue. That's what it looked like. And we're launching this alliance, as I'd mentioned earlier, of countries that will be the activist in this field. We've got to get our mojo back on human rights. This is really uh, something we just can't lose sight of, the preciousness of the individual and the right to freedom. And that's what I'm really concerned about. I am also concerned about this weaponizing of religion. We're going to have a meeting in the Vatican middle of January between the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, between the theologians, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity around the point that our faith does not support the use of violence in promoting the faith. Faiths have different just war doctrines, and that's all fine. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about promotion or proselytizing the faith or pushing the faith. Our faith does not support use of violence in doing this. And then we want to take that on the road. Take it to places like Nigeria, Central Africa Republic, lots of different places to just say, because if we can get the Abrahamic faiths to agree on this and really push it out there, I think we'll be really moving ahead. Well, this has been an extremely moving conversation. I thought for sure Ambassador Ramak was going to talk about Iron Man suits for all the leadership. <laughs> 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 but thanks so much for being here for what you're doing. All best. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me for this conversation. Appreciate it. Faith Angle exists to help mainstream journalists expand their view of religion here at home and around the world. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.